0: <laughs> I don't want to sit down. I might fall asleep as I'm. What's up with that guy? He's sleeping. Can you hear me? Yep.
1: Happy Resurrection Sunday. Yay. Um if you will all turn in your Can I just shut this? in your red hymnal to number 247. 247 in the red. And then stand with me. We'll wake up a little bit.
0: this service but good to see you all bright and early not quite sunrise but pretty early that's okay i was up with the sunrise i don't know about you the older i get the less i can sleep uh, so you don't have a bulletin so you don't have the title uh, for the message this morning and pastor asked me to speak uh, about the crucifixion um, and usually on the sunrise service what do you normally hear about you hear about the Resurrection. In fact, in the past, as I looked through the history of things that I have spoken in the morning, the topic was all something about the resurrection, but not this morning. This morning, the topic is about the crucifixion, and Pastor is going to deal with the subject of the resurrection in the service to come. The sermon uh, titled this morning—I shouldn't say sermon—the thoughts, the ideas—is uh, prophet, priest, and king of the crucifixion, and we hear about you know Jesus's control for sure, and those things we know about the story. Um, And uh, I I invite you to read through that this morning, if you haven't. I'm not going to do that. We are going to spend um, time in Matthew, and Matthew 26 in particular, and we're also going to kind of take a survey through Hebrews. Very quick and concise, because we only have a little bit of time uh, before the next service. So uh, let's pray before we begin, and uh, we'll talk about his offices as he approaches the, the moments of his death. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the the beauty of this morning, and Lord, how often these mornings go by us so unobserved. We're just stuck in the doldrums of routine. We wake up, and every day seems to melt into the others, forgetting and to look at the environment that you've created for us and the beauty therein. Thank you for such a beautiful morning this morning as we meet as your people, to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray this morning that you'll be with us, as well as the many churches that are celebrating, the many people called out from this world and called to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that we will, as a collective whole this morning, offer praise to our King, Jesus the Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Christians throughout the world have met already, and yet will meet to remember and celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet before any resurrection might be a possibility, a death must first occur. We do not talk about resurrection when there is still life within. We may speak of resuscitation or someone to be revived or refreshed, but we do not use the term resurrection without being paired with death. The global Easter meetings this morning over someone's resuscitation, revival, or refreshment would not garner the excitement, wonderment, or worship as does resurrection. Indeed, it is not his resurrection that Jesus commands us to remember. It is his death that he demands we regularly remember when we take part in the ordinance of the Lord's table. For it is with his death that he procured salvation for his people. This morning, I want us to look at the Lord Jesus Christ and his offices of prophet, priest, and king as we examine the events leading up to and ultimately ending with his crucifixion. The first office of Jesus is often relayed as his role as prophet. Well, did Jesus prophesy about his death? Most certainly he did, and here are just a few passages. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Luke 9, 21 and 22. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Matthew 16, verse 21. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Mark 8, 31 through 32. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed for them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Luke 9, 43-45. And, taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. Luke 1831 34 at least three times in three different events, and some of these things I had just read were synoptic, they were part of the same uh, events, just relayed by different authors. At least three different times, Jesus plainly told his disciples that he was going to die. They heard him, they at least heard the words, but they could not yet understand. Regardless, these passages demonstrate Jesus' knowledge of his own death and how it would occur. The text of Matthew 26 verses 17 through 35 gives us many prophecies that come true in a very short period of time. And remembering that the definition of a true prophet found in Deuteronomy 18 states that if a prophet speaks something in the name of God and it does not come to pass, they were not speaking the truth and they should be put to death. The prophecies of Jesus all come to pass within a very short period of time would like to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 26, we'll start at verse 17 if you'd just like to follow. I will be reading them. <coughs> Matthew 26:17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. We'll stop here for a moment. I find it interesting here that they don't question Jesus about this very practical prophecy. They just go. And a similar event occurs in chapter 21, previous, when Jesus says in verse 2, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. And what I love about these two similar practical prophecies is the seeming unknown variable of the owner of both of these items the donkey and the room with the prepared feast. Maybe finding a donkey is not that rare, but taking it without much of a protest from its owner is a little harder to believe. What is more, the owner of the house and room would have probably been preparing it for himself and his family. To simply give it up to someone else means that he and his household were now unprepared for the feast. And Nonetheless, in both cases, no resistance is given, and this makes the prophecy that much more miraculous in proof of Jesus' claim to the office of prophet. Moving on, verse 20. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve, And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, One after another, is it I, Lord? And he answered, He who has dipped his hand in this dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as as it is written of him, But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born Verse 25, now Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. Maybe it is a miraculous thing to predict your own death, but it is harder still to predict how it will happen. Here, Jesus knows his betrayer, and one might reason that if he had known his betrayer beforehand, he could have taken steps to avoid him. But Jesus' death has always been his mission. There will be no avoiding it. If he is made to be like his brothers in every way, then Hebrews 9.27, which states, it is appointed for man to die once, is true of Christ as well. Therefore, he didn't avoid calling Judas to be a disciple. He didn't ostracize Judas from meetings. And quite frankly, Judas, Jesus treated Judas... The same as any other disciple. In fact, Jesus, for all the awareness of Judas' intent, sheds light on several passages of prophecy concerning his betrayal. Trail found in the Psalms, one of which being Psalm 41, verse 9: "Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me." Verse 26. Now. Now, though yet to come to pass in time and space, the covenant of salvation has been agreed upon by the Father and the Son. Therefore, it is done. But the event of the actual sacrifice and appeasement of God has not yet occurred. Therefore, this initiation of the Lord's Supper is prophetic in nature. In a way that only God can do, the covenant is simultaneously complete and yet awaiting completion. When it comes to time and space, we must always remember that time and space are created tools of God. He is not bound to them, they are bound to him. And I often think about what had to be going through the minds of the disciples during the time they were with Jesus. It is easy now to look back on the creation of the Lord's table and easily see the correlation between the broken bread and Christ's broken body as well as the red wine symbolizing the shed blood of the Savior. But for the disciples, they have no idea what he is talking about. In just a short while, they will understand. Now verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd... And the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. All of the disciples thought they had unwavering courage and fidelity to Christ. But here at the end of the meal and after hearing some very bad news, Jesus lets them know that they are all going to scatter and abandon him. Their response is rather predictable. First of all, they miss the part of the prophecy where Jesus alludes to some very reassuring things. In verse 32 he says... (coughs) (coughs) But after I am raised up, (coughs) I will go before you to Galilee. In a very short sentence, (coughs) he alludes to his resurrection and the fact that he will indeed see them again. But they don't hear that. What they hear is that they are going to desert their leader and fall away after three years of being with him. And to top that off, Peter, the unofficial spokesman of the group, is going to deny Jesus three times before the morning. All of this, of course, comes true immediately, imminently, in fact. Following this, there is a time of prayer, and then Jesus is arrested, and they scatter. Jesus makes one more prophecy before his death. Luke 23, 39-43, it says, One of the criminals who were hanged, rallied against him saying are you not the Christ save yourself and us but the other rebuked him saying do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds but this man has done nothing wrong and he said Jesus remember me when you come into your kingdom and he said to him truly I say to you Today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, even for us to hear these precious words from Jesus upon the hour of our death, what a great comfort. What assurance that must have been for the adopted child of God dying next to the Son of God. And what a blessing for him. Brethren, this last prophecy of Jesus Christ was as ironclad as any other ones he had spoken. This was Jesus, the prophet, the prophet, during the events that led up to his death now let's look at Jesus and his role as priest during his crucifixion one of the most revealing requests of Jesus of his father is found in Luke 23, 34 Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do you know, early in my life when I heard this verse I struggled, maybe you did too First, I couldn't wrap my head around asking for forgiveness for those people who were causing him so much pain. In the midst of agonizing, torturous pain, he's actually thinking about the well-being of others. I would be asking for them to be crushed myself. Later on, I wondered about the reason Jesus gave for their forgiveness, for they know not what they do. And I had always been taught that ignorance of the law is no excuse for transgression. But the beauty of this request is actually due to the beauty of Jesus Christ as priest. He is the only mediator between God and man. His name is the only name under heaven by which men can be saved. The reason God the Father hears and grants Jesus' requests is because he loves him dearly. Luke eleven eleven, What father among you If his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? And the same is true of God the Father. And so the obedient son, acting as priest and mediator, asks his father to forgive the most heinous of sins ever committed, the murder of his only son, his perfect, uniquely beautiful and begotten son. The father not only hears his son, in the midst of anguish and pain, experienced by both the father and the son, he delights in granting the request. Then we often think about the pain and the shame of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what about God the father? What father could stand and watch and restrain himself as wicked men tortured and murdered your only child all the while having the power and ability to stop the event from happening I don't think I would have been able to restrain myself and I imagine no earthly father could only God the Father could do it and he did secondly I want us to look at Jesus as the high priest if we had time this morning, I'd have us read all of Hebrews, but we don't have time, so I leave you to do that later. For now, turn to Hebrews 4, starting at verse 14, and we'll be hitting a few chapters and pas- passages. Hebrews four 14. we'll read to chapter 5, verse 10. turn to chapter 8 the first three verses next we're just doing a snapshot here of Jesus' high priest there's a lot of material between chapter 5 and chapter 8 verse 1 of chapter 8 now the point in what we are saying is this we have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the lord set up not man For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, even through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Brethren, the entire act of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the greatest act of any high priest in all of history. We see within the many requirements and regulations within the Levitical law that for an appeasement of God for sin to occur, there must be a priest and there must be a sacrifice. God stated that it was only the priest that was allowed to do the actual killing of the sacrifice, not the people who brought it and needed the sacrifice for them. So if John 10, 17 through 18, which states, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may te- take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. If that statement is true, then it must stand to reason that Jesus is acting both as high priest and sacrifice. This we saw mentioned in Hebrews 9, verse 12, where it read, He, that is, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Brethren, without the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ, there would have been no acceptable sacrifice to God to cleanse us from our sins. As high priest, he takes his and gives up his own life, and it's only him who can do it. Lastly, brethren, today, because our time is short, we need to examine Christ as king and sovereign over the, I'm going to put these in quotes, circumstances, of his own crucifixion. And we have already looked at Christ's authority over laying down his life. And although this speaks to him as prophet and priest, as we have looked at this morning, it must also be classified under his kingship as well, because it is a matter of authority. I would like us to go back for a moment to the beginning, the creation. Before God speaks, there is nothing than using the power of his word... God the Son, God speaks and suddenly something exists that wasn't there before. Imagine, if you will, in the mind of God all the things that are suddenly now in existence and God's complete awareness of their form and function perfect in every way. And now realize that God has created the elements and all their building blocks knowing full well that some of the iron that he has just created will be used to fashion the nails that will be used to hold his body to a tree. A tree that he himself will grow and nurture. That tree will be placed in the ground on a hill of dirt that he has formed and separated from the waters. Now we do not see Christ the Creator and Sovereign as somehow reticent or thinking about how these elements and the like will be used against him in the future. No, we see him designing and making them with purpose. A purpose that is unswerving in nature. There has always been a date with the cross for the Lord Jesus Christ. Even as he creates time on the very first day of creation. There is no possibility of death by a Roman cross. There is only the certainty of such an event. It is the king's will that such a sacrifice would be made, and nothing its the will of God. And there is more to consider. Later, as God is giving the law to his people, long after the fall of Adam and Eve, God the Father introduces punishment to the point of death for certain sins committed. One of many passages in Leviticus 24:16 and 17 reads, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. And all the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Such institutes are not only sanctioned by God himself, they are part of the code and law for his people, and they are not up for debate. Governments have certainly taken this responsibility upon themselves throughout history. And it will come into play with Jesus' own death centuries later. Lastly, I want us to consider the sovereign work of Jesus in shaping the circumstances of the world before his humble entrance into it. I believe greatly that some of the confusion over the prophecies of the Messiah were handily missed by the Jews because they had no reference to understand them. Let me explain. The Roman general Pompey conquered Jerusalem and its surrounding areas in 63 B.C. The Roman council installed Herod the Great as king of the Jews in 40 B.C. And with the invasion and ultimate conquering of Israel by the Romans, certain prophecies concerning the death of Jesus can now be fulfilled that couldn't have been as easily fulfilled had they not been under Roman rule. Take, for instance, the whole idea of crucifixion. Crucifixion was a Roman means of execution, not Jewish. Under Jewish law, as we just read, the means of public execution was stoning. If we look to some of the well-known prophecies concerning the suffering Messiah, stoning doesn't make sense. But crucifixion does. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. John 3, 14 through 15. Well, how was that serpent lifted up by Moses in the wilderness? By a pole. We know now that this was an allusion to the crucifixion of Jesus. But in the Old Testament, look, they look to the serpent on the pole and they live. In the New Testament, we look to the Savior on the cross and live. If Jesus dies by stoning... There is no lifting up. There is only crushing weight pushing down. For dogs encompass me, a company of ev- evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Psalm 22, 16 through 18. Now here we now see the clear reference to what actually occurred with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It was customary to divide the possessions among the Roman executors, and they figured the condemned were not going to need them. But consider the reader in the days of David when these verses were penned. They may understand to some extent the dire circumstances the author is relating in Psalm 22, but they cannot conceive of crucifixion. None of these things would have occurred with the act of stoning. The action was too swift to divide garments, and the injuries inflicted by the rocks and stones would not be consistent with the idea of piercing hands and feet. And these next, cor- uh, cons- next correlations concerning piercing are interesting. In Zechariah 12.10 it reads, And I will pour out on the house of David and on in the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when they look on me, on, whom they, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Now this passage directly relates to the nailing of Jesus' hands and feet to the cross, as well as to the account in John 19, verse 31, Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross of the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth. That you also may believe. For these things took place. That the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again another scripture says. They will look on him. Whom they have pierced. By the way the phrase. The one they have pierced. Is found once more in scripture. Of the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 1. 7 through 8 reads. Behold he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him even those who pierced him and on all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him even so, amen I am the Alpha and the Omega says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty the one that they have pierced is none other than the Alpha and the Omega Jesus, God the Son as Adonai Jesus, the Sovereign Lord and Holy King. No wonder they are weeping and wailing at the sight of him. Jesus, as such a king, connects himself forever to the piercing he received both in his hands, feet, and side. Next, in the passage concerning his piercing, we notice another phrase. Not one of his bones would be broken. And this is prophesied in Psalms 34:19 through 20 Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Now I know, brethren, that understanding that Jesus was not going to lose his life to either the crushing asphyxiation of crucifixion or the crushing blows of stoning, he lays down his life when he sees fit. But the people there that day believed that the mode of his death was effective. Stoning would normally break several bones. And in crucifixion, bones are broken, as we read, to speed the death of the condemned. But, you see, due to the sovereign control of Jesus Christ over the circumstances concerning his death, not even the hint of this prophecy not coming true is allowed. The mode of death chosen by Christ does not include the breaking of bones. And one might even speculate that the suggestion to break the bones of the condemned may have been an effort to negate that particular prophecy by the evil one. But nonetheless, when the soldiers come to Jesus, he has already given up his spirit. These ideas beg the hypotheticals' question, since it wasn't crucifixion, nor would it have been any means of execution. The method surrounding the death of Jesus Christ could have been any number of things. The date with the cross is not the date with Jesus' death. Jesus dies at his own hand. He gives up his life at the appointed time. Designing the elements of crucifixion and such at the beginning of creation was equal to designing the elements that would make up his garments. Jesus gives up his spirit at the appointed time. No heavy rock throne, no Roman cross, no fiery furnace, nor any other method would hasten that event. The sovereign king dies when the Sovereign King decides to do so. That, my dear brethren, is true and awesome power. It is divinely appointed for man once to die. Jesus has set his appointment, and he has kept it. What a king! To sum up, the Lord Jesus Christ did not look down through the events of time leading up to his birth And notice that Rome was going to invade and subdue Jerusalem. And in so doing, bring with them the perfect circumstances to accomplish the prophecies that he had made throughout history concerning his death. No. From the beginning of all creation, the plan, the only plan, was set into motion, unalterable in direction and purpose. And part of that plan was the capture and subjugation of Jerusalem by the Roman general Pompey 63 years before his birth. And with the rule of Rome, crucifixion would be available as Jesus Christ wanted it to be. So that his scripture concerning his death, unseen by generations before, would be fulfilled. Lastly, uh, quickly and maybe a bit anticlimactically, I want to look at those who tried to influence and exercise power over the death of the Supreme King, Jesus Christ. First up, Herod the Great. Now though being pronounced King of the Jews, and that was his title by the Roman council 40 years before the birth of Christ, upon hearing that the real King of the Jews had been born, Herod sent his soldiers to kill his own people. Children, in fact, two years old and under. Think about that for just a minute. Infanticide. It took the misdirection of the magi and a direct warning from God via an angel to Joseph to take Jesus and flee to Egypt. Yet in doing so, prophecy is fulfilled. Out of Egypt, I called my son, Hosea 11.1. And also... Thus says the Lord. A voice is heard in Ramah. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children. Because they are no more. Jeremiah 31 verse 15. And what of the devil himself? (laughs) And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And said to him, if you are the son of God throw yourself down from here for it is written he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone Jesus answered him it is said you shall not put the Lord your God to the test and when the devil had ended every temptation he departed from him until an opportune time Luke 4 9-13 what about Pontius Pilate he that is Pilate entered the headquarters again and said to Jesus where are you from but Jesus gave him no answer so Pilate said to him you will not speak to me do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you Jesus answered him you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And verse 12 reads, From that time on, Pilate sought to release him. John nineteen nine through 12. Brethren, what is so interesting about this last one with Pilate is he starts off trying to intimidate Jesus into answering him because of his authority. But after the rebuke of Jesus, he tries desperately to release Jesus so that he won't be crucified. Yet it is to no avail. Pilate cannot hasten Jesus' divine appointment, and he cannot stall it either. He does not realize that it is not Jesus that should be impressed with this minor Roman potentate, but rather that he, a mere creation, is in the presence of the master designer, architect, creator, designer, and sustainer of the entire universe. Brethren, may may we be more aware of the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. I would dare say for all of us, the more you get to know us, the more flaws are found. The more cracks in the facade are seen. The deeper the examination of our lives brings out the ugliness of our sin. Ah, but to cast your gaze upon Jesus Christ, the perfect and holy Son of God, there you will never be disappointed. A lifetime of learning about him warrants no ill thoughts of him. There is no hidden blemish in Christ, only more greatness to be observed, and subsequently more worship to be given. May we today praise him for his work and control in the hour of his death as prophet, priest, and king. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for such a great Savior as we have. And Lord, how we have been dulled and lulled into thinking about our own issues in this world. This is just temporary. And Lord, we know as we have read this morning, there is a time appointed for us to die where we will leave this place. And what will we do after that? Unless there is peace with you, we go to someplace far worse than here. Thank you this morning for a way of salvation through the death of Jesus Christ. And yes, we are that bad. We are that bad to need a sacrifice so great as the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for his willingness to come, to live a perfect life before you, to offer himself as high priest and sacrifice, to redeem a people who didn't want to be redeemed, who didn't know they need redemption. Thank you for your love for us beyond this our own scope lord be with us this morning help us as we celebrate in the hour to come the resurrection a dead savior is no savior at all and so father we look forward to hearing this morning and worshiping you even more we ask your blessing upon our time in the name of the lord jesus christ we ask an amen. You've got about a nine minute, uh, break. Yep. maybe a little more than nine minutes <laughs> hit the bathroom or something.